People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Jonathan Faust is our guest today on Health Gig. Jonathan is a guiding teacher with the Insight Meditation Community of Washington and a founder of the Meditation Teacher Training Institute in Washington, D.C. A senior teacher and former president of Kripalu Center, he leads retreats, trainings, and classes in the D.C. area and all around the country. He also works individually with people who are interested in healing and experiencing spiritual awakening. Jonathan lives right outside of Washington, D.C. with his wife, Tara Brock, who is also a meditation teacher and leader. We are so thrilled to have Jonathan with us today on Health Gig. So, Jonathan, welcome to Health Gig. It's great to be here. Great to have this time with you. Trish and I are so happy you're here. And we love to start our interviews by just asking a little bit about you, where you came from, of course, we're interested in how you met Tara because she's a friend as well. But tell us a little bit about you to begin with. Sure. I grew up, in fact, part of this whole conversation comes out of my background. I was raised a Quaker in Pennsylvania and kind of went to Quaker schools, that sort of thing. And something about my early Quaker roots triggered a very deep kind of spiritual restlessness. I learned meditation when I was 15, and that kind of got me started. I've had a pretty consistent practice since then. So I went to college, grad school, I was in the Peace Corps for a number of years, and then I stumbled into an ashram for lunch, and I stayed for 24 years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, this is Kripalu Center in, uh, in Western Massachusetts. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 of course. So toward the end there, I was actually president of Kripalu, and we had a conference called East Meets East. It was yoga and Buddhism. And I was on the yoga team as a keynoter. And so was this chick named Tara Brock. <laughs> she was on the Buddhist team. So uh, that's how we met. And that's where the fireworks started. Oh, that's Aww. so sweet. It really is. So now presently, what are you doing in your life? Well, Tara and I live outside of D.C., about 45 minutes outside of D.C. And when I moved from being immersed into that world, I moved down here to join her and then started teaching more through kind of the lens of Buddhist psychology as well. So I've done a lot of corporate work, a weekly talk, weekly podcast, and lead retreats around the country, that sort of thing. Trisha and I have been to your lovely home. Tara invited us there once. It's beautiful. And you live out in nature. It's just beautiful. We're so grateful. So grateful. Yeah. Just surrounded by woods and we're right next to the Potomac as well. It's been just terrific. Jonathan, Dora and I are so excited that you're joining us here today on HealthGig. You are one of the leaders in mindfulness meditation and all things retreats. We were wondering if we could just take a minute to center ourselves before we start our conversation. Could you lead us with this? I would be happy to. I would benefit from that as well, no doubt. So one minute centering. So if you like, you can close your eyes, unless if you're listening to this driving, you might want to have your eyes open. But if you take a moment either to close your eyes or maybe just for a moment, let your gaze soften and notice where you feel the breath the most predominant on the inside right now. And then if you would, for the next three exhalations, notice how much you can relax and soften and feel. 
And we tend to hold tension at particular points inside. And I'll mention just a few places inside. And you might just take a few moments to, to kind of feel what's there and notice if you could soften and relax. Could you feel your forehead smooth? Could you relax your tongue in a way that it fills your lower jaw? And could you relax the root of your tongue down into your throat? And you might notice what happens when you relax and soften the palms and sense from the inside out. You might take a moment just to sense the quality of presence here and now. If you could name it in a word or two. And then the sense what it's like just to, to let this be. And then one of my favorite things is you might begin to deepen your breath and reach your arms up overhead and stretch up to the left side and the right side and then smile like they do in the commercials when they wake up in the morning. And then when you're ready, you can open your eyes. Thank you. Thank you. You know, that smiling like they do in the commercials when they wake up, it works every time. <laughs> it it really does. This is state changer. It is. And you do mindful movement. Yeah. My whole background, you know, all those decades of, of doing lots of deep yoga has kind of translated into mindful movement as well. Yeah. Such gifts. And, and it's so always available to us, right? It's always just there. Every time it happens, it always just hits me like, God, why do I not do this more? Yeah. Uh, so true. So Jonathan, we live in this very uncertain world. I think our true nature is to be happy and to find joy. How do we find happiness in sort of an unhappy world? You know, it's the deepest question you're asking. We are indeed surrounded by tremendous stress and tremendous suffering. And at the same time, we also have this innate capacity for joy. Some traditions, they talk about how life is the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And it's such a challenge to keep our hearts open and at the same time to stay present to ourselves. It's that balance of what I think of as clear seeing, because you don't want to pretend that it's not there, but it's also a question about keeping our hearts open. And it's such a dance, particularly these days. And what I've noticed is I can read the headlines and it brings up all kinds of emotion and anger for me. But what I've noticed for myself is that when I act out of anger, I'll have a certain degree of effectiveness in the world. But if I act out of compassion, I have another degree of effectiveness in the world. And that's part of the dance of being awake in this wild time we're living in right now, I think. I think we can all kind of visualize what anger, or at least I can, visualize what anger might look like, right? I get that. You might lash out at people. You might be yelling. You might be just blood pressures rising. But how do you describe what compassion looks like? What's very, very interesting around accessing compassion is that we have to make room for what's actually there. And this, I think, is where the mindfulness practice comes in. Because I love the translation that anger is an unmet need. That whenever, whenever there's anger, there's something we're wanting, there's something we're hoping for that's not happening. And if we don't examine it, we live in this state of blame. We're externalizing everything. But I know for myself, when I can pause, and it's not that often, <laughs> but when I can pause and I can ask myself, what is it that I'm wanting? What is it that I'm hoping for that's not happening? It will guide me into a pretty vulnerable place inside, but it will also take me into a much more intimate 
relationship with what's actually happening. Because you do talk about the still small voice. Is that what you're saying that you're wanting to access at that time when you go in? And can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. You know, being raised a Quaker, you know, the Quakers would always use this phrase of, you know, the still small voice. And which really speaks about your conscience, you know, of really tapping into that, that really deep place of inner knowing. And it was interesting and being raised a Quaker and, you know, in the Quaker tradition, there's no minister, you're sitting in silence together and kind of contemplation. There's very, very little instruction on how to access that, that still small voice. But then when I stumbled into meditation, when I was 15, it was like suddenly, wait a minute, there's a science to this. You know, there's actually, there are actually practices that are designed to, to help the mind settle. You know, that the judging, comparing mind to help us to begin to access that still place of inner knowing. And that's what you call intuition. Or that's what we know as intuition. Yeah, it's really when you get to that place where you just know. That's such a challenging place to get to. But when, when you're in that place where you just know it, you, you know it in your bones and you just, there's no arguing. It's like uh, some people will call it choiceless choice. You know, yeah, I've got plenty of options, but you know what? Not really. If I really listen inward, this is, this is just something I have to do. And part of the, the art and science of getting to that place, I find absolutely fascinating. How do you work with others who are stuck in the, you know, the anger mode or some other modality? Yeah. And that's really the, the kind of hard work with it. You know, it's like in meditation, when you focus on, when you, if you decide, okay, I'm going to use meditation to get more concentrated and you start practicing and you notice how your mind is just this caffeinated chipmunk, you know, if you, if you focus on the compassion practices and you really pay attention, you'll notice how mean and petty you are. And when you focus on, on that, that still place inside, what you're going to notice is just how the mind is just this wild, wild thinking machine that's kind of out of control. So there is that, that element of looking for the techniques that help you to calm. And there are a number of ways to do that. I, I love the metaphor of how if you take a glass of muddy water and you set it on a countertop, over time, the silt will drop to the bottom of the glass and the water will become clear. So in some traditions, you know, as in, you know, kind of classical meditation, you go to a meditation treat, that's what you do. You just, you know, you're sitting, you're walking, you're not, you're not speaking. And over time, there's that settling and the clarity begins to emerge. And then uh, other techniques that actually kind of like shake things up and then help you to soften. And so um, there are myriad techniques to help you get there, but we, we have to get there before we can do anything. So you know how you hear people say, I just can't meditate, forget it. I just can't. It's just not happening for me. Will they have that opportunity to hear that inner voice ever or what happens? Oh, what a great question. Because I meet a lot of people who say, you know, I love yoga, but I hate meditation. They're really kind of the same practice because you're really taking this ADD mind that's constantly planning or reviewing and you're bringing it into the here and now through this doorway of the body. So when you're hanging on triangle pose, you know, sweating and trying to keep the posture going, well, it's very easy to be in the moment because the sensations are so strong. But when you're doing something as subtle as just watching the in-breath and the out-breath, it's much more challenging 
to keep the mind engaged into, into the subtlety of sensation. So I often find it really helpful for people who are like, I just can't focus. Quite often, you need to kind of get those deep-seated tensions kind of either out of your system or use something really vigorous, you know, like to use a yoga practice or to work out. And I noticed early on in my life that after I would work out, it was so much easier to meditate because like the deep-seated tensions were dispelled a little bit. So your mindfulness and movement, is that yoga or is it walking meditation? What is it that you teach and practice? One of the things I really like about finding your path is to really just try things on and see what works. So I offer a wide variety of stuff. You know, I find sometimes just, you know, there's a teacher by the name of Osho, and they develop this thing called dynamic meditation, where you shake and jump and scream for 20 minutes. <laughs> and believe me, by the end of that, you're ready to sit. <laughs> That's yeah. true. It makes you sit. So sometimes vigorous movement is really helpful. Sometimes doing ultra slow motion movement is really, really powerful. One of my favorite ways to transition to meditation is, to, is just to bring my hands at about shoulder level and then to imagine that if someone was watching me, they could barely perceive movement and let the hands do this ultra slow motion descent down toward my lap. What that can do is it creates a sense of absorption and a sense of, of really, really deep inner focus on presence. How do you know that it's intuition and not judgment? Great question. Great mm, question. Mm. So here's what I've noticed. We have what we call the linear rational mind, where we spend most of our time. And the linear rational mind does three things really well. It judges, it compares, and it tries to figure things out. When your intuition is flowing, there are three things that are not happening. You're not judging, <laughs> you're not comparing, and you're not trying to figure things out. You're kind of in that flow state. When you think of the times when you're journaling and just get into a flow or you're doing some kind of art and suddenly it's like, you're not thinking, you're just doing, it's just coming through you. And so that distinction I find to be really, really helpful. Well, I guess when you are in this situation too, you could develop a practice of saying, okay, take this breath, see where I am right now. I think we heard you say that for the first 25 years of your life that you walked around with your head on, wait, you thought your body was holding your head? Wait, what was that? Is that oh, what yeah, you said? Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> for the first 25 years, it was like, the only reason I thought I had a body was to make my head portable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, somehow that really resonated. <laughs> and then what happens is you just begin to know it's intuition. Yeah, so I love this stuff. It's like, we have four ways that we process information. And they, they're directly linked to like your intuitive style. So some of us are visual. An example I love to give is William Blake. William Blake, this you know, wonderful artist and poet, all of his work was simply trying to capture the visions that he got. So some of us think in pictures. And, and you can tell someone who thinks in pictures because they usually talk really, really fast. They use words like, can you imagine this? Well, this is how I see it. Can, can you pick picture this? And they tend to talk really fast because they have the image in their head and they're trying to get it out to you as quickly as possible. So visual learners. Yeah. Visual learners. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Then you have the auditory. And so Joan of Arc is kind of the classic auditory intuitive. She heard this voice that guided her. And people who are more auditory, if you listen to how they talk, they'll use words like, wow, that sounds good. 
doesn't ring a bell. They actually, you can pick up the words that they use on their primary way of, of, um, of speaking. And their voices are usually more moderate because it's usually like the sound of their voice. And, you know, uh, they're usually a little bit more like even paced when they speak. And the third style is, is kinesthetic. And if you ever have like had a massage or had body work with someone really masterful, or like you lie down on the massage table and they just put their hands right on that spot and you'll say, how did you know that's where I'm hurting? And they'll say, um, just felt right. And it's really interesting. And you can tell kinesthetic people because, because they, they speak, um, well, uh, their, their speech is um, it's a little slower because uh, they're trying to, you know, um, trying to get in touch with what they're, you know, what they're feeling. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. Okay. And, then the third, and then the fourth style is just direct cognition. You just know. You don't even know how you know it, but you just know it. But it kind of identifying your style is an indicator of how information tends to flow through your nervous system and kind of flow through your awareness. Wow. Are you an auditory? I'm more like sort of auditory kinesthetic. I'm training myself to be kinesthetic. And this is the thing. We tend to have one predominant, one predominant and one secondary. And here's the thing is like the visual images come and go really, really quickly. They're there and then they're gone. Auditory, like you'll hear a sound or a phrase, like someone was, I was leading him through this inquiry process. And then he said, you know, I'm, I'm working this issue and, but God, this song just keeps coming in my head and I'm trying to like, trying to get rid of it because I want to really find out what this is all about. I said, well, what's the song? And he said, let it be. <laughs> hmm. You think there might be some valuable information in that? Wow. <laughs> the thing is the kinesthetic. It's, it's the slowest to form. It's the most challenging to kind of access, but it is definitely the most reliable. It's when you have that feeling tone, when you just like, it's that whole thing of like, I feel it in my bones. My gut's just telling me this is what I need to do. Yeah. When you talk about listening with your body, is that what that? Yeah. And just to throw a little bit of psychology in here, when you really bring your awareness to sensation, to just what's happening, there's just it's pure energy. The energy is neither good nor bad. But then without you even being aware of it, when you're meditating, the energy will arise and then your awareness puts it in one of three categories. It'll be the sensations that are pleasant that you like, the sensations that are unpleasant that you don't like, and the sensations that are neutral that you really have no effect. And then what happens is before you're aware of it, that feeling tone will get translated into a thought. Oh, it's a cold draft. I don't like cold drafts. Did I turn the temperature down? I should turn the temperature down. What, what was my heating bill this week? You know, all that stuff. And then, and there's this very interesting thing that arises. Here's the raw data of energy. And then here's the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And then here are the thoughts that arise. And then if you think the same thought a thousand times, it calcifies into a belief. And if you're not aware of your beliefs, they form your habits. If you're not aware of your habits, they form your character. And if you're not aware of your character structure, that becomes your destiny. 
so when you were going through the four, both of us were sitting saying, what am I? Okay, what's Dora, right? So we're like, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. what are we? And then where, again, is it intuition? Is that judgment? Is that, what is that? And then the other question is, you started on the path when you were 15, you started your meditation. So do you have less to carry than those of us that didn't find this at 15 and were our backpacks heavier? And maybe it's going to take us a little while longer because Dora, I'm sitting here going, okay, she's, you're soft, Dora. You're, which one are you? You know what I mean? Which one? <laughs> um, but, but does it change? And then Dora, Dora just said, Trisha, your direct cognition. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> but then it's like, yeah, but am I? You know what I mean? So like, talk to us, Jonathan. Talk yeah, to well, us. Well, well. <laughs> Dora, what do you think you are though? Dora, what do you think you are? I don't know what I am. And that's part of my character. I'm very confused about myself. But Jonathan, tell us, how do we help us, Jonathan? (laughs) (laughs) And again, the question also goes to you started younger. We started later. Are we destined to not ever get there because we're older? (laughs) You know what I mean? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, gosh, there's so much here. (laughs) He doesn't know where to begin. (laughs) So first of all, identifying your style is helpful. And then you have to realize that it really is a combination of all three, but there may be one that you rely on a little bit more. And when you look at neuro-linguistic programming, which has been around for a really, really long time, it becomes very interesting where you can actually look for cues. And, and if you look at someone, like if I were to ask you, what color top did you wear yesterday? Your eyes are going to move to your right. You're going to go into like visual memory. So you can actually, it's this whole science of looking at how we process information. I read this book way, way back when, back in my uh, spiritual community days when I was doing a lot of fundraising, and the book was called Influencing with Integrity. And the translation is, here's how you can manipulate people to your will. (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole idea is like people like people who are like them. So if you find someone who's really kinesthetic, then I would say, well, how would it feel to write a check today to support our mission? Oh, okay, right. You know, if someone was visual, like, well, could you see yourself doing this, that that sort of thing? So there's a whole science behind this, which is somewhat nefarious, has nefarious <laughs> possibilities for sure. <laughs> but, it, but here's the thing I find around practice and what it means to become more free inside. On the one hand, I think what happens for many people is they'll, they'll start to meditate or they'll do some practice that, that really brings them in the center and they begin to calm. And then there's all this low-hanging fruit. You know, you begin to see, oh my gosh, here's all the stuff I'm holding on to. I don't need to hold on to it. Here's this belief. I don't need to believe it. Eventually, things start getting more challenging. You know, I, I love that the image from Joseph Campbell talks about this circle with this horizontal line through it. Above the line is what you're aware of. Below the line is everything you're not aware of. And when you meditate, when you relax and pay attention, you move the line. So all this unfelt, unseen, undigested material starts to be come above the line of awareness. And what I find is, if for people who've meditated a lot, they really strengthen that sense of the witness. And that they have this capacity to observe without judgment a kind of non-preferential awareness, but the line continues to move. And quite often, what, the, what will start to emerge for people are like the early, early conditioning. It's even like pre-verbal. So I'm not sure it gets easier. You know, in some ways, you're less identified, 
But on the same way, as you become more and more free and less conditioned, you're always working with stuff. I mean, there's not an end game here. It's a process. It's a journey. Yeah, exactly. And, it's, and I think I like to see it this way. It's a journey of glimpses. Because we, we've, all, we've all had glimpses. You know, we've all had those moments of like, oh, my God, I'm in the state of like non-desire and everything is just perfect. And, and I think it's more a sense of like we're just it's stringing together more and more of those glimpses as we go along. Because we all know this stuff, you know. And then stringing along the glimpses, I guess, is the idea, right? Sort of exactly. tying them together. Yeah. Have them yeah. last a little longer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dora and I study a lot about how the body holds energy. If I'm feeling something in my gut, what's happening? Is it my mind telling my gut? Mm-hmm. Is it really a feeling? Is What is the energy? Can you explain that whole thing? Yeah. Well, I love the phrase, your issues are in your tissues. Yeah. <laughs> the body is a mirror of the mind that any emotion, like an emotion is a psychobiological event. It's happening in the mind, but it's absolutely happening in the body. And even a thought is a psychobiological event. So if you have a thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm just so busy today. Well, underneath that, if you trace it back, you're going to find some corresponding resonance inside. And so part of, uh, I, I love the work of uh, Dr. Eugene Jenlin, who developed focusing. And I got certified in that many, many years ago. And, and he talked about what he calls the felt sense. And the felt sense is how your body holds an emotion, how it holds a thought, how it, how it holds any given moment. And, and, where, and this is where kin- developing kinesthetic intuition becomes so interesting because we tend to hold most of our emotion or that felt sense in the midline and the core. So it's, you know, the muscles around your eyes, like you're going to cry. It's the, the throat. It's, you know, the heart, the belly, the deep in the gut. And in that the felt sense, you know, the feeling tone, it's going to show up in one of three ways. It'll either be strong and unmistakable. You can't miss it. It's the lump in your throat. You know, it's that burning sensation around your eyes like you're going to cry. It's that, that twisted feeling in your guts like something horrible. Something horrible is going to happen. So you can't miss that. The second is it'll flicker or blip or be like a little wave. You'll just sense it's like this wave of sadness comes, but now you can't find it. Usually where it is, quite often, is it'll feel vague and amorphous. And so the magic word is something. So I, wow, there's just something kind of tight around my heart. You know, there, there's just something kind of, kind of sick feeling in my, in my gut right now. And that becomes really powerful information when you're beginning to kind of discern what your body is trying to communicate. And I love this whole idea, like, you know what it's like when when you have a pet who's sick and it can't speak to you, or you have a child who, you know, who doesn't have words and all you can do is sort of like hold that, hold that little being and try to, try to kind of sense what, what's going on here. And when we do this kind of like intuitive somatic inquiry, it's that same kind of, the same kind of listening because it's, it's coming from below the line. I know that feeling of there's something, there's just something, but you can't name it. Is that okay? Do we have to get to the bottom of it to heal? 
Or is it okay to carry around this little something and just acknowledge it? It's such a great question and observation because usually where I am is like, okay, there's something going on inside. Let me find out what it is so I can nuke it and make sure it never comes back. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something that the Buddha allegedly said, and I always underscore the word allegedly because we were just writing down, you know, hundreds of years after he died, you know, they wrote down what he allegedly said, but it's been so helpful for me in my own practice. And he said, very simple, he said, familiarity leads to wisdom. And, and so what I try to do is instead of trying to figure it out, if I can just get more familiar with it, it's a completely different way of doing this internal investigation. One is through the mind. You know, let me, let me label it, let me categorize it, and then let's find a way to eliminate it. When you're just trying to get familiar with it, it's, it's much softer. It's much more intuitive. It's much more of a feminine approach. And quite often, when you're just trying to get familiar with it, then you're opening yourself to more information around sensing what it is and what it needs and how it wants you to be with it and what message it might have for you. And less frustrating because it's hard to identify exactly what's going on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the more comfortable we can get with that something. And quite often, intuition kind of like pops through when we least expect it. You know, it's what, again, it's when we're not judging, we're not comparing, we're not trying to figure it out. That's when actually that information kind of, kind of filters through, you know, kind of seeps above the line where we begin to recognize it. Do you get to the point where you can hear your body, I guess? I mean, because you're becoming familiar with it. So you'll feel a slight like rise of something coming. And then do you think, oh, that feels like, that familiar fear. What happens when people just wake up with it and it's always there? Like we've heard people recently say, it's always there. I have it. It's just there and it just is there. But sometimes it gets more, sometimes it gets less. What's your body inviting you to do something? You're saying, let's get familiar with it. So how do you get familiar with it? I kind of feel sometimes just like you have a low-grade fever. I just have low-grade anxiety. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's this function in our awareness that's basically, you know, when you walk down the street, there's a function in your awareness that's basically scanning for things that could kill you. You know, <laughs> don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die. <laughs> right. And, right. and that's a pretty good function because <laughs> it has kept us on the planet so far. But when that anxiety gets so chronic, what again, it's all below the line. Then it influences and it throws us into the sort of negativity bias, you know, where we're, where suddenly we're just caught in self-preservation and then we're, we're missing out on, on possibilities. And there's a, there's a practice that I, that I, I do for myself. Um, and again, this comes from that tradition of focusing with Dr. Jenlin, um, and it's called clearing the space. It's very, very simple, but I'll do this sometimes in the morning when I'm waking up and going like, Oh my gosh, like what what is this? Like I am not I'm not a happy camper eager to leap into this day. And what you do is you just ask yourself repeatedly ask yourself a question. And the question there are like one of three variations. What's between me and feeling good inside? Or what's between me and feeling happy? Or what's between me and feeling free? And so I might lie there in the morning, I'll think, okay, so geez, what's between me and feeling, feeling really good inside? Oh, well, I got this nagging low-grade headache, you know, at the base of my skull. So you, do, you kind of say hello to it. 
and imagine you could just place the concern to the side. Then you ask again, what's between me and, and feeling really good inside? Oh, I've got this lunch thing that I really don't want to do. You say hello to that. Place the concern for the side. And, and you, just, you kind of keep, you keep doing that. And sometimes people will find like, wow, other than these 25 things, I'm actually starting to feel feel pretty good inside. <laughs> but what it does is it, it, it gives you a sense of the landscape. And again, you're, you're bringing these kind of unconscious anxieties above the line just by naming them. And, and sometimes it's like, oh my God, I just, just naming it, I feel so free. Sometimes you name it and like, ugh, I gotta, I gotta change my life. Sometimes you name something and there can be like, I'm overwhelmed, I need help. But nonetheless, you're, you're seeing more clearly what it is that's actually going on. So I love that exercise. That seems like it could be pretty powerful. I, I think that's great. The, the other added thing that's happened in our lifetime, right, is this collective anxiety. I mean, what's going on pandemic after pandemic, what's going on with the environment? How do you speak to that? I mean, there's kind of new things that are happening that I don't know if our nervous systems have been built for. I don't know. Maybe that's very dramatic, but it just feels like we are collectively and some, some people that might think that they don't have problems, but we're all part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I keep coming back to that phrase, you know, that kind of classic phrase from the Bible, I think, that says, my cup runneth over. You know, and when, when, when people say, you know, there's meditation and yoga and therapy, it's also narcissistic, you know? My response is, filling your cup to overflowing is your responsibility. Because when my cup is overflowing, it's very easy to be kind, you know? It's very easy to be present. It's very easy to feel how I might be most effective in the world. And I think each one of us has to really kind of figure that out. Like, what is it that's going to fill your cup and even fill your cup to overflowing? That makes so much sense because I know when I'm feeling like, ah, things are going great. Like, things are great. This just happened. This just happened. All of a sudden, I'm like, sure. I can be there. Yeah, sure. But the minute one of those external things just doesn't work out, I'm finding myself less generous. So what I think I'm feeling, what you just said was, it's all in here. That's that inner work everybody talks about, right? It's that space that it's not from the outside, but it's from the inside. So I understand what you're saying there. Like it's my work to make me feel better. It's not about my work to become more successful. I mean, it is, but the successful stuff isn't going to be the thing that's going to make me more compassionate and kinder. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's this phrase again, I'm, I'm influenced in part by Buddhist psychology. And one of the things the Buddha allegedly said was finding your path is your path. So what each of us needs to do is to find what are the practices What's the lifestyle? What are the techniques that work for you? Because there, there, there's so many different practices and we just need to keep experimenting and refining and knowing that's going to keep changing because you're changing. But when we can fill our cup and establish that sense of overflow, life is so different. It's just so different. I love the practice clearing the space to begin the day. A lot of people struggle with sleep and, you know, all the buildup from the day. Do you have any special practices for the end of the day? Well, I became a maniac on sleep. I actually have a, a podcast on how I, how I transformed my relationship to sleep. Yes, talk about that. Well, they're the externals and the internals. You know, the externals are the toys 
you know, um, you know, I, I wear an aura ring, you know, which is amazing. You know, it gives you all this feedback, really brutal, impartial feedback on how you're successfully living or not living your life. You know, um, Tara and I use an Uller, which is a, a, a cool <laughs> mattress, which, wow, does that make a difference? Check. Don't eat, you know, Check. Um, let's see yeah. the other toys, all the external things too around not eating, you know, three hours before you go to bed and all that stuff. Right. Cooling the room down, not just the Uller bed, but cooling, getting the room down. Yeah. Make sure it's all dark. <laughs> but then there's the internals. How do you work the internals to kind of help you to, to kind of let go, you know, and so much of it is around training ourselves to kind of detach from external stimulus, which is so hard, so hard, you know, just having the phone in another room, you know, taking time to wind down, you know, if I can't sleep, you know, oftentimes I'll do like, I'll do a body scan, you know, meditation. Um, the other technique I'll often do is like a, it's an open focus technique where you you feel or imagine the space on the inside. You know, can I can I feel or imagine the space between my forehead and the back of my head? You know, can I feel or imagine the space or the volume inside my tongue? And kind of systematically move through. And you know, the first meditation retreat I went on so many years ago, and the instructor said you may find difficult to sleep. He said, if you, if you can't sleep, just systematically from the inside, move from the crown of your head down to the, down to your feet. He said, even if you don't sleep, you might be surprised at how rested you feel. And that's my number one technique, because when I'm engaged in sensation, I'm here and now, but when I'm not, my mind starts hallucinating about what a horrible day it's going to be tomorrow because I'm not rested. <laughs> So that's been helpful for me. Did you struggle with sleep? Yeah, I did. I did. I'm a very, very light sleeper. And, um, you know, just the whole thing of, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to go, go back to sleep and, you know, all that stuff. And and then when I looked, looked at the science of it and the consequences of not sleeping, it kind of scared me into action. And so I just thought, whatever, whatever these guys, you know, whatever the experts um, are telling me I'm going to do, I'm going to do. And it really has made a big, big difference for me. I think what you're saying is so true. I'm also a person that needs to work on my sleep. Dora, you sleep really well, right? Pretty well. But remember, I told you, I go to bed way too early and then I wake up way too early. So I'm so I go to bed at 830. How about you? Adora. <laughs> yeah, we're kindred spirits. <laughs> I'm, I'm about in bed then oh, yeah. and then I'm up. Problem is, though, sometimes I get up at four yeah. or four thirty. It's a little bit too early. Yeah, both Tara and I, you know, we're, we noticed when, and again, this is there's actually it's genetic. Um, and we noticed that when we would go on vacation, you know, we would, you know, we'd be struggling to stay awake till eight thirty. Well, what I have found is when I wake up at four or four thirty, if I meditate for a little bit, sometimes I can get in a little bit more, a little more sleep after. Yeah, I try to do that. When I lived in an ashram for all those years, you know, we went to bed at, I think, nine. And, uh, and our teacher said something really, really wise. He said, said, the advantage of going to bed early is not just going to bed early. It's all the trouble you don't get into because you're going to bed early. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> That's so true. 
You're right. Yeah. You're not going to get a little hungry and eat a little too late. That's what I used to say to my kids. Nothing good happens after come home. (laughs) You know, now it's like nothing good happens after eight (laughs) o'clock. Exactly. Seven o'clock. If freedom is important to us or this feeling that we all want, we need to take care of our bodies. And one way to do that is to make sure that sleep becomes a priority. Well, then there's this wonderful feedback loop that's customized for each of us to let us know when we're out of balance called suffering, you know? So what I really found is if I really listen to my body and here's this other, this other supposition about the body, that the body doesn't lie. And what I've found is I think that is true. When I, when I can really get back to that still small voice that arises from the body, it doesn't lie. Another really cool technique, since we're kind of in the like pragmatic technique, is and this is something that Dr. Jenlin noticed. This is sort of triggered his whole development of somatic psychology, was he was watching someone who was sort of in a therapeutic process. And this woman said, I'm so angry at my sister. And then she closed her eyes and she said, No, I'm disappointed my sister. He thought, what happened there? Her, her mind said, I'm angry. But then she checked in with her body. And the word angry did not resonate with the feeling. The feeling was disappointed. And when she named that, she just named something that was much more true. So it's another, another way to kind of work is just to keep checking back with the body. And just to and just to kind of try that on. What if the body doesn't lie? And we can sort of like verify. Does, does that resonate with the feeling tone of what my body's trying to tell me? Makes a lot of sense. Right. And then you get, and as you described earlier, then you sort of begin this practice or the habits start to change and then the thoughts start to change. And then, and that sort of when it all begins to shift, right? Yeah. And the more we kind of listen to, we, you know, it can be as simple as, you know, when you're buying groceries, you know, like, do I get the red apples or the green apples? Just take a moment. Like, it's, it's inconsequential, but just sense of there's a little, is there a little, little twinge toward the red apples? <laughs> you know, and, and, and I guess, and again, we have this thing, you know, a number of times during the day when your body's hungry, just to really ask, wow, so what, what are you needing right now? And, then, and, then, and it's, it's just to ask, first is to ask the question, but then it's to really listen, to kind of pause and listen and, and just notice what, what kind of comes up in that. I can see how your mind will tell you to be angry at someone about something, but then listening to your body or what about listening to your heart? Because maybe does your heart tell you, well, that person is a person too, and that person we don't know where they are coming from on this. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I kind of think of it as like whole body listening, you know, and, and the heart, of course, is such this amazing tuning fork, you know, and there's this incredible resonance of the heart as well, you know, so it's listening to the gut, but it's also listening to the heart, you know, and, and even listening to the throat, you know, like the whole, the body is an incredible repository of information. And um, including that is so, so important. You know, when we talk about creating space, right? So the stillness can happen. So I think what you're kind of describing is with the apples, I'm taking a breath, I'm deciding, and then that space is where I can hear 
my intuition. Is that right? Yeah. The action seems to be, there just needs to be space. It can't be this, like this, like this, like this, because you can't hear when it's moving that quickly, right? Exactly. And then that must be what you mean by being in the moment, right? Because it's the space I'm checking back here. So there's the space in between. It's almost the in-between that is our life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's those in-between moments that we sometimes don't talk about. It's always the other the moments that we talk about, but it's the in-between. Are those the glimpses that you were talking about? Yeah. Those are the moments of, uh, I like to think of it as just deep listening. You know, and it doesn't have to be this long, dramatic thing. It can be, you know, it could just be that sense of, you know, someone in your life is struggling and you kind of close your eyes. And, and, I, and this is where the power of questions comes in as well, you know, where you can ask yourself a conscious question, you know, like, how can I help this person? And you just close your eyes and just, just listen. And, and, be, and, and then part of it is to be open 360 degrees. There may be something that arises from the felt sense. It might be a, a, an image. It might be a sound. Uh, you know, or a word or a phrase. It's just part of that sensitizing ourselves to to the power of questions. Yeah. And maybe Jonathan, you can come back sometime. I'd be delighted to. So much fun to hang out with you. And I love this stuff. Oh, yeah. And you're really getting, I know, us thinking, right, Dora? I mean, I'm thinking in a different way and so appreciate how you're describing this way of mindfulness. You know, it's, it's different than how we were thinking for a little while. So really appreciate that. I like to think of it as what really interests me is what I think of as pragmatic mindfulness. Now, here are these beautiful teachings that are these ancient teachings that have been around forever. Well, how do you apply them to that difficult conversation you have to have with someone next week. That's what interests me. I'd be, be, be happy to explore this stuff. Well, you've given us a lot of tools today and a lot of food for thought. So thank you for coming on our podcast. Well, thank you so much. What a pleasure to be with you. Really great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.